Good morning, everyone. Good morning to those of you who are online. Hey, South, and just a quick heads up. Um, thank you so much. I'm ringing a little bit. Thank you so much for your generous hearts in sending out friends that we love to Santa Ana. Last week was the first Santa Ana launch Sunday, and they had uh, 75 people there and three baptisms on the first day. Isn't that amazing? Honestly, um, in the midst of churches being scattered, very sadly, I'm speaking at the closure of a friend's church this afternoon. They say one in every four American churches will close because of COVID. To be actually planting and launching, God is just kind, isn't he? But thank you so much for your generosity. And you know, we've done this quite, quite often, and I always brace myself saying, Lord, it's worth giving, it's worth sowing. But the Sunday that we send was like, oh, it's going to be crickets in here. Jesus is so kind. This last Sunday, we had more people come out here and online than ever before. Here. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So give Jesus a hand. It's just amazing. Thank you for coming out. I know it's chilly and cold, but not as cold as last week. It's great to worship under the tent. And let's continue in Luke chapter 8, 26 to 40. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. The region of the Gerasenes was a Gentile region. Uh, it's what we would call current Jordan today. So in kind of the Middle East, Palestine. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. Now, Legion was an army term of uh, 6,000 soldiers. So they were many, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss was a biblical term, uh, the, the place, the dry place that God was preparing for Satan and his demons at the return of Jesus. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away 
proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord, amen? Amen. And it's a strange word. And it's kind of a scary and a freaky word. And that's okay. I just want us, as we try and come to grips with this word, to beware of not relegating this to a primitive, you know, AD 30 Middle Eastern phenomena that doesn't touch our lives. What we need to see is that this is written by Luke, who was a medical doctor. And when Luke wrote the Gospels, he said, I want to set in order a historical account of what happened. Luke was not given to exaggeration. He was not mystical like John. He was a logical doctor. And yet he so matter-of-factly uses the term demons again and again and possessed again and again. And what God is wanting to do at least at least one thing through this passage is to give us a category for spiritual warfare to encourage us that Jesus is Lord and has authority over spiritual darkness and to wake us up to being more discerning in these days. Amen? So what we first see here is before Jesus has shown his authority over death, over sickness, and over a storm. They've just been in a storm in the boat, and the disciples are terrified, and Jesus speaks to the storm, and it quietens down to a whisper, and they say, even the wind and the waves obey him. What kind of man is this? And then he says, let's go over to the other side. I mean, if I had just gone through a storm, I'd just like, man, I just want to be like, you know, get my sea legs, be on terra firma for a while. No, 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 let's go over to the other side. And Jesus, having quietened the physical storm, now shows that he has authority over a spiritual storm that has tormented this man. And the description of this account of this man actually happens three times in three gospels. And we piece together the jigsaw puzzle and we get a horrific picture of a man who's absolutely devastated by these demons. The Mark passage says that he cried out aloud all the time, cutting himself with stones. This passage says he lived alone, naked in the graveyards. He was isolated. He lived kind of in these cut out caves that they would bury people in. And he had fits of rage that would terrify people. That's what Matthew says. And so they tried to bind him up in chains, but actually the demons would seize him. And it was like not one demon, thousands of demons, legion, for we are many. And he would have this supernatural power to break the bonds. And then it says, and the demons drove him into the desert where he was isolated. Terrible picture of absolute devastation. And the town folk were absolutely terrified of him. And then Jesus meets him. And the amazing thing is, he doesn't even ask to be healed. Jesus just has compassion on him and starts to speak to these spirits who have devastated his life. And if you see the before and after picture of this man, after Jesus has driven out these demons into a herd of pigs, which is weird, and they've been drowned over the cliff, this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus and says, clothed and in his right mind. Jesus brings mental health 
to this man who's been devastated for many years. He's sitting in his right mind, which means that word right mind, purposeful, rational, and peaceful. And all the people come, the herdsmen call them and they find him and says, they find this man healed. And that word healed is such a beautiful word. It's the word sozo. Can you say that? Which means to be saved and healed and delivered. And so what we first find is that Jesus has complete authority over evil. And therefore, we do not need to be afraid. Whether we're young or old, many of us would read or hear about the demonic and feel afraid. It's natural to feel afraid. But there's one person who is not afraid in this passage. I mean, the people are terrified of the man. The man is terrified of Jesus. And the demons are terrified of Jesus. And Jesus is completely calm. Is that line in the song, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. These demons who terrify the crowd are terrified of Jesus. Jesus has complete authority over darkness. 1 John 3 verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the evil one. I think very often we have this idea of Jesus and Satan in kind of a cosmic tug of war. Who's gonna win? Who's gonna win? But here we find that Jesus is on a whole nother level. He has authority. In other words, he is the author. All Satan can do is deceive and tempt and intimidate, but he can't create anything. And here the creator and author of all things actually sets in order his creation. All Satan has power to do is disrupt the order of God's creation, but here God comes and shows his absolute authority. Beloved, we need to realize that in our day and age, it's very easy to neglect the demonic. And I think because we're sophisticated and we're educated, when someone is beaten up and their life is devastated, we very quickly start to call out, well, it's chemical, it's circumstantial, it's emotional, and it's relational. And there is truth in all of those things. But this word, Luke wants us to have a category for the demonic. And I think very often in cultures like ours that are sophisticated, we deny the presence of the demonic and Satan actually loves it. There are other cultures who kind of glorify and fixate on the demonic. C.S. Lewis speaks about that. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I grew up in such a culture. I grew up in a culture that had an excessive and unhealthy interest in the demonic. We blamed everything on Satan. When our South African cricket, cricket captain was caught betting on games that he played in, it was a famous thing, he said, the devil made me do it. And there's an unhealthy fixation on the devil, but I believe our culture has an unhealthy denial of it. And we have categories for chemical, circumstantial, relational, every category except the demonic. And Satan absolutely loves it. 
In the culture I grew up in, Satan was much more like kind of a, a viper. You would see very often people get delivered of demons and it would be loud and it would be aggressive and it would be dramatic. Here in this culture, it's almost like Satan comes as a boa constrictor. And he just subtly squeezes the life out of us, almost like Carr in the Jungle Book. Trust in me, trust in me. You know, he kind of hypnotizes people and they find themselves bound. And what, what Jesus wants us to take from this account is firstly that he has complete authority over the demonic and therefore we do not need to fear. But he also wants us to have a category and courage to engage in spiritual warfare. Yeah. It's no surprise that Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he, he taught them to pray, and Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from? Deliver us from? Do we have a category from, for being delivered from evil? This is not like just a show-and-tell display of Jesus' authority. We find in Luke 9, 1, the chapter straight after this, it says, And Jesus gathered his disciples together and gave them authority over demons and sent them out. In other words, this was a coaching moment. He was saying, I'm not just going to display my authority in this moment. I want you to walk in my authority and engage in spiritual warfare. What does that mean? Because I think when we think of that, we think of some kind of guy in a white suit shouting at the top of his voice, and you're just like, oh, that's weird. I don't want to engage in that. One of the things that we have to realize about authority is that authority is not in the personality. It's not a loud and proud person. Authority comes when you hide yourself in Jesus and say, I am not strong. I am not very brave, but Jesus, you are, and I'm walking in your name. And it's so important if we are to be disciples and make disciples of Jesus in this dark age that we are to understand authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was coaching these disciples. Can he coach us? Do you have a category for the devil? Do you have a category for temptation and deliverance from evil? I'm sure that you can think of moments where you're just going, oh my gosh, there was, there was something else going on there. And I actually have to fight this spiritually. I'm being tempted. I'm being attacked. And the Bible says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. He's not a roaring lion, but, but he prowls around like a roaring lion. He intimidates, he deceives, he accuses. Just look at Satan the very first time he tempted in the garden with Adam and Eve. He firstly, he tempted. Did God really say? He tempted them to disbelieve God. And then he tempted them to disbelieve what God said about eating. You will surely not die. And then they fell into temptation. And then the tempter became the accuser. Don't you find that in your life? You get tempted in a way and Satan's like, nothing's going to happen. It's going to be absolutely fine. You fall into temptation and then he switches from the tempter to the accuser. He says, oh, you're going to die. God hates you. You're not a Christian. Tempter, accuser. Tempter, accuser. 
And we have to realize that in this story that's so dramatic, there are dynamics at work in our world that we have to stand against. So look at this man. What were the spirits at work? There was firstly, there was a spirit of despair. He cried aloud and cut himself. It was absolute despair. There was also a real spirit of outrage. He had these outbursts of anger, terrorized people. And then there was a spirit of isolation. This is what it says. It says, the, the demon drove him into the desert. And I just want to say, man, let me quieten down my voice and say, can we recognize and discern that those dynamics are at work in our culture today? Spirit of despair. This last year, I've never seen despair like I've seen it. They say that one in every four teenagers in America have had suicide ideation in the last year. And, and it's not just located amongst teenagers. There's incredible despair because there's a sense of darkness. Where's there light at the end of the tunnel? And of course, there's circumstances, there's emotions. But beloved, do we have a category for the devil tempting us towards despair? And can we at least acknowledge, my gosh, I am being drawn into hopelessness and despair. Can we take the word of God and say, no, it is written and start to use the word of God for hope? Can we recognize that there's a spirit of outrage in our culture at the moment? Look how these town people demonized this man. Jesus was the first one to humanize this man. But they demonized him. They just tried to bind him in fetters. This is the walking horror story. We've got to keep him away. Don't we see that happening in our culture today? Where we look at people that we disagree with, who are living differently from us, and we kind of just bind them and we demonize them. We're not going to touch them. And actually, Jesus is saying, can you see Satan's at work in our culture today? Don't fall prey to this outrage. I saw something going on on Facebook this week between two church members where there was like a real outrage and contentiousness. Shelley's saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. <laughs> but I had to go and speak to the one man who'd been contentious and I think a bit rude and just say, man, you don't have to agree, but, but apologize to that sister. She, she's in your church. And he was soft-hearted and repentant and he did. And they repented and forgave. Beloved, we've got to see that Satan is tempting us to a culture of outrage, to demonize people who think differently from us. And then we see this culture of isolation where Satan wants to drive us into the desert. I know it's complex. I know we can't interact in the same way that we used to. And I'm certainly not wanting to demonize people at home. We want to serve you. We, we don't want you to feel like second-class citizens. But we have to realize that in this time, Satan would love to isolate us. He loves the fact that we, we cocoon, we withdraw, and then he can draw us into addiction and depression and all sorts of conspiracy theories. He loves that stuff. Haven't you found that when you make a decision, either to pray, read your Bible, or go to a church meeting like this or small, haven't you found like, it's all, almost like, like all hell breaks loose often. 
It's like, no, 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 okay, we're gonna go. And you gather the kids and then suddenly like the toilet overflows and the dog eats gopher poison and your younger son starts throwing up and you're just like, what is going on? <laughs> Spiritual warfare is going on. Spiritual warfare is going on. I just wanna try and demystify this. One of the ways that I pray in this area is I pray through the Lord's Prayer and I get to lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, and I just say, Jesus, I'm really feeling tempted in this area. And I feel like Satan is at work. And it's different on different days. Sometimes it's tempted to self-pity. Sometimes it's tempted to self-medicate. Sometimes it's tempted to be over-focused on money or tempted to anxiety. And I just call it out. And I say, Lord Jesus, I submit to you and I resist the devil. Please cause him to flee from me. I take authority over the spirit. Now, I just want to encourage you simply to get to the Lord's prayer and ask, how am I being tempted? And please, Jesus, deliver me from evil. The beautiful thing is that as we heard Emma say, actually the first Adam, Adam was tempted and gave into the did God really say, Jesus is the second Adam who was led by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't driven by the devil into the, into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And there Satan tried it again. And the second Adam actually said, Satan, it is written and Satan left. And so when we stand against temptation, we're not standing in our willpower. We're standing in the willpower of the second Adam who overcame and who will overcome on our behalf. Amen? Amen. So let's have a category for spiritual warfare. I was saying at the 8.30, early on in our marriage, the Lord taught us that, man, we should counsel and lead people to emotional and relational health. I'm so thankful for spiritual directors, counselors, marriage and family therapists in our midst. I've been helped by them. You've been helped by them. Let's never demonize them. They are part of the army of God under Jesus. Amen? Amen. But man, we, we realize sometimes you've got to have a category for the demonic. I was speaking to, to, to Michelle, JD's wife, and she's a marriage and family therapist. And she was just saying, sometimes she bumps her head in therapy against a demon and she has to actually has to change what she does. And I was counseling this guy who'd come out of a drug background and he was depressed because his girlfriend broke out for, uh, with him and he was bitter and you know, self-pity and all that stuff. I'm trying to counsel him. One day we drive home late at night and there he is, passed out, drunk as a skunk on our front kind of porch. And I'm just like, oh man, how can I help this guy? I say, Alan, his name was also Alan. He gets up, you big guy. Alan, I'm trying to talk to him and he starts cussing at me in a Scottish accent. He was not Scottish, but he starts cussing at me, you know, who do you think you are? This is my home, you know, get out of here. And I'm like, what is going on? And I realize this is a demon. And I just realized I can't speak to Alan. I've got to speak to the Scottish demon. <laughs> Braveheart, whatever he's called. And I just say, get out of here in Jesus' name. Get out of here in Jesus' name. And I had to like take authority over this thing. And I'm scared, man, but I'm like, there ain't no reasoning with Alan. There's something's got hold of him. And after a few minutes, he's like, he comes to, and, and I can reason with him. Now, some of you will say, well, 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 that's you, Alan. You're kind of a loud guy, and that's okay. I'm a quiet, timid person. 
Jesus taught us very early on that authority is not vested in the personality. It's vested in the name of Jesus. And during that time, around that same time, I, in my first few years of marriage, I would have these night terrors that we realized, man, they were demonic. And there were times when I literally could not move and I could not speak and I had to tap Ronelle, you know, wake her up. And I would say, Ronelle, please worship Jesus over me. Please worship. She's not a worship leader. She had this little quiet voice. But actually the darkness would begin to tremble as she would sing. Authority is not vested in the personality. It's vested in the personality of Jesus. You don't have to shout. You need to trust and walk with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now, what we see here is not just a category for spiritual warfare, but what we see here is that there's a response that is polite refusal to Jesus. And if you contrast this man whose life was devastated, who's now sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind, fully clothed, and all the region comes and says, he's been healed. He's been saved, healed, and delivered. They love it. But then it says, and they were seized with fear, and they asked him to depart from them. So he got into the boat and returned. People, these are some of the saddest, most tragic words in the Gospels. These people who'd seen the authority of Jesus, but had seen that the authority of Jesus doesn't just heal and doesn't just save and deliver, it disrupts. Because 2,000 pigs had been drowned in the setting free of this guy. And essentially they're saying, Jesus, come and save, heal, and deliver, but don't disrupt our nice, quiet lives. Please leave. And the one who had commanded wind and waves and dead people to come alive, sick people to get healed, demons to go, he actually obeys these people. Isn't that scary? He obeys these people. He says, okay. And he got into the boat and returned. I was gripped by that. When J.D. spoke about Christian nominalism, the sense of like, I want Jesus to come and bless my life, but don't be Lord. Be Savior, don't be Lord. That's this. It's polite refusal to Jesus' authority. They don't cuss him out. They don't insult him. They just say, please leave. And he obeys. First year we were here, Levi, our youngest, was two. I've given him, I've asked permission to tell the story. He was like, Dad, you can tell stories that are old, just not current ones. <laughs> and he was two. He was getting potty trained. We go out on a date. My friend Donnie was a single guy at that, that time. Offers to babysit our three kids. What a single guy, hey? Amazing. Huh? No, he wasn't. He was, was he married? He was engaged, I think. Engaged. Okay, my wife said he was. Okay, he was newly, newly married. He didn't have kids though, right? Didn't, didn't, didn't have kids. I think he got married the next year. Anyway, we won't, be we won't get into a spirit of outrage here. He was a young guy and he phones us during the day and he was like, I don't know what to do. Because Levi says he wants to go potty, but he's sitting on the potty not doing anything. And I'm saying, Levi, you need to sleep. You need to go potty. And Levi keeps on saying, no, thank you, Donnie. No, thank you, Donnie. He's like, he's being so polite, but he's refusing. No, thank you, Donnie. And we're just like, yeah, that is Levi. He's polite, super polite. And I want to tell you, man, here in Orange County, very easy 
just to go very politely, no, thank you, Jesus. No, thank you. Come and heal. Come and bless. Come and provide. Come and set free. Just don't disrupt. No, thank you. I want to tell you, Jesus will leave. Jesus will leave to other regions. We're praying for revival, beloved. And I love hearing the stories of God at work in our midst. Just love it. Do we realize revival will be incredibly disruptive? It will cost us our herd of pigs. Cost us our money. It will cost us our family rhythms. If we want Jesus to bring revival, and he does, we will have people around our dining room table like this man who will freak us out. Do we really want it? Do we really want it? And I think when we pray for revival, Jesus is like, I want to bring it, but do you? I mean, do you want me to bring it? Want me to bring it? Really? Okay, here we go. It'll cost you your pigs. These people like pigs more than people. They didn't really want the kingdom to come. And the problem with Orange County Christianity is that we want Jesus as Savior and healer and deliverer, but not as Lord. And we need to repent of it because we will never, ever see his kingdom come unless we are willing for his authority to disrupt our bank balances, our family dinners, our relationships, everything. I'm saying, Lord Jesus, please help me too. Please help me too. Amen? Finally, what we see is just this beautiful moment where this man just wants to be with Jesus. Jesus has come and set him free. He's an extreme makeover, this guy. He is just in his right mind, and he begs Jesus, please, can I go with you? Contrast his begging with the town's polite refusal. No, thank you, Jesus. How amazingly secure is Jesus? I just love Jesus. Look, if I did something that offended you, some miracle that offended you, and all of you left, but only one person stayed, like Matt. Matt stayed, just Matt. And all of you left, like get out of town. And Matt's like, hey, Alan, I'm with you. I'll come with you. Out of my insecurity, I would be like, please stay with me. I mean, you're the only guy I got. Jesus just says, no, go home. Go home. How amazingly secure is Jesus? How amazingly generous is Jesus? In the midst of rejection, one guy wants to go with him. He begs to go with him. And Jesus says, no, just return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Isn't that amazing? Beloved, if Jesus has authority to set us free, he also has authority to tell us where to live and be on mission. He does. He does. And if I was this guy, I would want to go with Jesus because this whole region has rejected the Jesus I love. It's like a God-forsaken region. I would want to go with Jesus to better regions that honor him and receive him and welcome him, not this God-forsaken region. But what we actually find later on in the Gospels, Jesus returns to this place and from moving from rejection, they now adore him. I reckon it was because of this guy's obedience. He went home on mission. He would have rather gone on a mission trip with Jesus, but he went home on mission. Can I just lovingly challenge us? 
about what it is to follow Jesus' authority at home in Orange County, California on mission. Because in the last 13 years of being here, I have seen a spirit change in this place, in the church, from California dreaming to California leaving. When I first came out, people were like, California, this is awesome, prosperous, diverse, opportunity, beauty, weather. Come on, look at the weather. We can surf. And I mean, people would say, you can surf, you can ski, you can dirt bike all in one day. Aren't you lucky to come here? And now you just hear people say, oh, it's so expensive, can't buy a house, taxes, liberal politics, uh, moral fiber falling apart. Let's get out of here. It's become trendy to hate on California. Not so many amens right now. <laughs> and listen, I get it. I get it. These are not small things. We can acknowledge the challenges of living here. We can acknowledge that we don't like some of what's going on here. But if Jesus is Lord, Jesus gets to determine where we live on mission for him. And I'm tired of hearing Christians say, I want to go to more God-fearing, moral, cheap places where Jesus is honored. What if Jesus is saying in authority, go home and tell of all that I've done for you? And what if he's saying, I'm giving you authority to change the tone and the tenor of this place from rejection of me to adoration of me? I will not shame people that go. I will not. But as long as the Lord calls me here, I will challenge Christians who hate on California. It's ungodly. You can call out the giants. You can call out the giants, but let's speak of Christ and his fruit in this place. Let's tell of what he has done for us. Please, let's be a people that speak well in this place. Even if this place feels like exile to some of us, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city that the Lord has carried us into exile. Amen? Amen. Jesus, help us. Help us to be a people that speak well of what you've done and speak well of what you will do here. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.